I waited patiently for the Lord. I waited impatiently. It took absolutely ages. I was going to be playing catch up all day because of this. But eventually the revolving door came round and I got into Sainsbury's. I waited at first proudly and then more worriedly and then after a time quite desperately. I tried not to look round for fear it would be seen as a sign of panic or faithlessness or distrust by the 150 or so stood be- people stood behind me. But then, 22 minutes and 34 seconds late, I wasn't counting. When I thought all hope was lost, the wedding march struck up, and we stood, and suddenly there she was by my side. I waited apprehensively even fearfully. My hands are sweaty, the room is hot and full, and it's my turn next. Will this scan show anything at all? And if it does, then what happens then? Oh Lord, be with me, because I just hate hospitals. I waited petrified, watching every car that came past, looking, scouring for the one with the flashing blue lights. I look again at my watch. Where is that ambulance? It's nine minutes since I rang 999. It's ten minutes and twenty seconds since Helen told me she was bleeding and couldn't feel the baby moving anymore. And I wait at 4.20 a.m. in the morning, petrified. Lord, be with Helen, be with the baby, and get that bleep ambulance here as quickly as possible. I waited in line, in a queue, to put my bags in the hole to take my seat to finally taxi along the runway. I waited as the engine roars and the plane shakes and we move forward and we take off. I suppose I waited patiently. I mean, what else can you do when you're strapped in a metal cylinder bound for the USA? How do you wait? Because how you wait is one of those real indicators of spiritual maturity. And I'm preaching on it this evening because it's a virtue that marks me out to be perennially immature. I waited, said the psalmist, patiently for the Lord. That's not to say that while she is in the miry mud, she is not cold and wet and miserable. 
It's not to say that there are not moments when she is anxious and scared and filled with longing. It's not to say that she doesn't ache to be released. Because she does. But she waits patiently for the Lord. And that is to say that in the midst of all this, there is in the psalmist a profound act of faith that the Lord will come and the Lord will save. So almost paradoxically, there is patience in the impatience. There's trust amidst the tribulation. There's resting in the time of testing. Not so that you float above it, drugged or immunized from the starkness of what's going on. But that in the reality of an awful situation up to your neck in miry mud, physically or possibly metaphorically, you know that God is with you and you believe the Lord will come to your rescue. And you wait patiently. It's incredibly hard. Now, God knows a thing or two about waiting. So I want to talk just a couple of minutes about divine waiting. Isn't it just mind-blowing that after the creation of the world and everything in it, where a creating God sits back and breathes a satisfied creative breath into the universe, that within moments of that, even as we fall dead in the Garden of Eden, God knows how and what it will take to redeem and restore us. But that involves a long wait. And in some senses, God still waits. Waits for human history to catch up with God's will. Waits for heads and hearts to turn to God and to seek God's ways. Waits for the time when all things will be reconciled and renewed through Jesus Christ, God's Son. And like all true waiting, even God's waiting costs. So that when Jesus, the Son of God, gathers disciples around about him and teaches in that very famous chapter of Luke's gospel which we if we were going to have a third reading this evening I'd have chosen and teaches about lost things lost coins lost sheep lost children two of the stories are about a seeking God but the longest and most famous is about awaiting God who looks up the road each day and no doubt longs for a prodigal's return. 
perhaps like I waited for the ambulance before Helen and the person we now call Sam were taken into hospital. Make no mistake about this. God knows about waiting. You could think that's absolute ontological nonsense. How can God, who is outside time and eternal, know anything about waiting at all? But in Christ we see God who knows what it is to have a racing heart. God who knows what it's like to wait so hard and trust so much that as you pray, the sweat comes off you almost like drops of blood in gardens called Gethsemane. God knows what it's like to brood over human affairs and watch as those you created and love blow themselves to bits with weaponry and technology, ideology and reason that must cause a creative God to despair if God was capable of despairing. So God does know a thing or two about waiting. Which is why perhaps those who write about God and seek to follow God regard waiting as a proper, deep, spiritual place. It's not a sign that God has forsaken you. It's a sign that you are able to join God in what one writer, one Catholic writer, W.H. Vanstone, described in this wonderful title, to participate with God in the stature of waiting. The privilege, the forming spirituality of placing yourself in God's timing patiently. But waiting is very difficult, not only because it's difficult, but it's particularly difficult because it's so countercultural today. Today, waiting is taboo. To wait too long is deemed anathema. As Zygmunt Bauman, one of my favorite modern philosophers, puts it, we used to be a saving card society, now we're a credit card society. Today, we want to take the waiting out of wanting. So we do. Or the great Freddie Mercury, who will be lost on half of us, no doubt, but without doubt the best frontman of a rock band ever. I want it all. I want it now. To wait too long nowadays is to start writing that letter of complaint. But not in the realm of the spirit. In the realm of the spirit, waiting forms saints. Waiting shapes disciples. I've often wondered 
And I'm a great devotee of a book many, 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 many years ago, showing my age. About a, a sociologist who talked about revelation instances or indicator experiences as he called them, Peter Berger and one of the many things he said was when he was in a kind of roundabout way trying to argue for the existence of God but not in a kind of classical theological sense he said think why when someone is rent apart with bereavement do we bother to tell them to keep going? Why, when you're going through illness and trauma, do we encourage and pray for each other that we will come through it? Unless somewhere deep hardwired within us, which was Berger's theory, there is some reason for working through it, for seeking to go on. And that reason is located in the ultimate purposes and intentions of God. Completely skew if Berger was also the person who said, why is it in the middle of a war-torn place that a mother will run to a child as the bombs are going over their heads, pick the baby up, hold it to his, her chest and say, they're there, Everything's all right. Mummy's here. When it's plain that things are not all right. Is it foolhardiness? Or at that moment in time of deep instinct, is the mother articulating something which is hardwired true? Because God is in the world. Fifty-five years ago, in a building site, on what, or rather, 55 years ago, when a house was being built in a building site in Otley, in West Yorkshire, if you were to excavate under that house now, you might find a pair of children's Wellington boots. Because when houses are being built across the road from your house and little boys being little boys like playing in mud the deeper mud the better you go splashing in the mud of foundations of houses until you can move neither your left foot nor your right and you are completely and quite literally stuck in the mud so you do what all small boys do mom which is why in the foundations of a 55-year-old detached house in Otley in West Yorkshire, next to the child's Wellington boots, you might find the residue of a pair of size 6 women's slippers. Where mum running out when said son starts crying and hollering at the top of his voice, walks out into the mud and extricates said son like a cork from a bottle. Because when you're really stuck in the mud, the only thing you can do is cry for help. It's no good somebody telling you to pull your feet out 
take another step. It's impossible. I waited patiently for the Lord and he heard my plea and lifted me out of the miry mud and set me on solid ground, or as Judith's version had it, on the solid rock. Great! And God will. But even if he doesn't, the psalmist says, I'll wait patiently for the Lord. You see, our testimony is not simply our praise when we get to solid ground. It's more profoundly our testimony when we're still in the miry mud. Go back to somebody like Martin Niemöller, caught up in the concentration camps of the Second World War and writing things about waiting for God's salvation in a context that would cripple most of us in a fortnight. And his testimony is all the more powerful because it's written day by day on scraps of paper secreted in the concentration camp. It's not written in an office in Zurich three years after the war's ended. So do you know where the psalmist is? Because if you look at the last verse of Psalm 40, she's still in the mud. But she waits patiently. And she believes. Have you ever been round a great cathedral? Overwhelming, some of them are. I like, on my holidays, just sitting in a cathedral. Find a little corner far, far away from everywhere. Perhaps light a votive candle or two and think of a few folk. Have you ever sat in the cold silence of a cathedral and let the voices come out of the walls and talk to you? Or is it just me that's mad? Those who worked patiently all their lives and never saw the end product because it took 200 years to build this cathedral. Seeing partially but partially blind but always building in faith. I'm building this cathedral. And though I never see it finished, I will wait patiently, believing that one day it will be given as a glory to God. I know how difficult it is to face the future partially sighted. God wants to use me, but how might God use me? There are thoughts that go around our heads. Wait patiently, says the psalmist, and trust Trust so that even if it seems never to happen, you waited patiently and faithfully because at the end of the day, that's what disciples do. In the legend of St. Martin, Satan appears in the form of the risen Christ to Martin and commands him to worship him. Martin, however, was suspicious. It's a name trait. Martin, however, was suspicious. He looked intently at the figure and said finally, No, I cannot worship you. You see, I do not see the marks of the nails. 
and it's from St. Martin's legend that we get that kind of more superstitious myth that the one thing the devil cannot counterfeit are the scars of crucifixion. When we get to the gates of heaven, whenever that is, whatever happens to us between now and then, I pray that the one with nail marks in his hands, who waited on the cross for what must have seemed so long, will look at us and say, come in, enter this eternal promise, because I see in you the marks of proper waiting. I waited patiently for the Lord and he heard me and delivered me. And that for disciples will suffice. Won't it?